hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Did you know that between May 31st and June 1st of 1921, that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a massacre of black people and the destruction of the Greenwood District of Tulsa, affectionately known as Black Wall Street? We didn't know about this either until about a year ago, and over 35 people in the Queer Money Facebook group admitted to not knowing this or not knowing it until recently themselves. No one claimed to have learned this at any time prior to a graduate level class. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 249, and we're discussing the destruction and devastation of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 with attorney, author, activist, professor, and historian Hannibal B. Johnson. Brace yourself for an important and at times gut-wrenching episode. We make the Queer Money podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer your question in an upcoming episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere, so banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Queer Money is being brought to you in part by the five building blocks of a happy gay life. Join the growing community of happy, healthy, and wealthy gay men who love their lives inside and out. Get your free copy of the five building blocks of a happy gay life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. Hannibal B. Johnson, uh, it is a pleasure to invite you on as uh, a guest here on Queer Money. We're happy that you are joining us to discuss this very interesting and intriguing topic that John and I have been in the dark for a long time on. So welcome to Queer Money. It's great to join you. Thank you. Uh, So just before we get started into this discussion around Black Wall Street and the race massacre that happened in Tulsa in 1921... It's interesting that this has become what appears to be almost a life's work for you and a topic that you are very knowledgeable on. And I'm kind of curious, how did you basically turn this into a passion? How did this become so passionate for you? It is kind of an interesting journey. I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is 100 miles um, southeast of here, a community of about 90,000. And I never knew anything about the history of Tulsa, not about Black Wall Street, which is the economic entrepreneurial character of the community, of the Black community, or about the massacre in 1921. I went to Harvard Law School. I clerked in Tulsa one summer, summer of my second year in law school. I came back to work for that same law firm permanently after graduating from law school. I got involved in the community in a number of different ways. I was asked by the local black newspaper, the Oklahoma Eagle, to do a series at one point for the Oklahoma Eagle on the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. I'd been asked to do some general editorials as well, but this was a longer series and I decided to go ahead and go forward and do that became really interested in this history of which I knew very little. And after that, I decided it was really important for me to tell that history from the perspective of a black person who's living in Tulsa to focus not on the massacre, but rather on the community and the individuals who created the community and sustained the community over time. So I wrote a book called Black Wall Street, from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District that came out in 1998. I've subsequently written three other books specifically about this history. One is a children's book, Up From the Ashes, that tells the story on the third grade reading level. The most recent book came out just months ago called Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. And the point of that book was really to educate people on what has happened in Tulsa in the interim between the massacre and now. We're about to celebrate the centennial or or mark the centennial on May 31st to June 1st, 2021. And people are going to want to know how has the community dealt with this historic 
trauma and tragedy and travesty of a hundred years ago. Right. I, so John and I have been reading both the Black Wall Street from riot to renaissance, as well as Black Wall Street 100 over the last couple of weeks. And so our knowledge is is growing by leaps and bounds of, around this particular event. And it's it's interesting you you mentioned that you want to tell this story from the perspective of the individuals who lived there during that time, especially African Americans. It reminds me of the of the saying of war, to the victor go the spoils. But it's also interesting that to the victor goes the history, right? Oftentimes, those who are in power and have control, they get to write history. And more often than not, when they write history, they write it from the perspective of themselves as the ones who made the right decisions, right? And I'm I'm thankful that you are exposing the truth about this situation. So it's wonderful to have this opportunity today to be able to tell these kinds of stories. You know, I'm reminded of, you may be familiar with the late history professor, Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn wrote a great book called A People's History of the United States. And his his concept behind that book was that we need to tell history as the rich mosaic that it really was, rather than as some sort of a monolithic, whitewashed version of the past that really eliminates or at best marginalizes, particularly people of color and, and people who are non-majoritarian. And then that would be, so that would be people of color, that would be LGBTQ people, that would be all sorts of people who don't fit sort of the normative values of the authors of these uh, tomes of history. Absolutely. It's uh, it's exciting that we have the voices out there doing this, because it does create that, like you said, the rich tapestry of what history really is. Um, speaking of, of history, for those of you who, of, of us who are not aware, can you give us a picture of what this uh, Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or maybe Tulsa itself was like in the early 1900s? So Tulsa in, in the early 1900s was well on its way to becoming the self-described oil capital of the world. Tulsa became famous because of the discovery of oil in places like Glenpool, which is just outside Tulsa in 1905. Uh, so the, the, the oil industry was really taking off in Tulsa early part of the 20th century. Tulsa was called the magic city because of the, the way it grew because of the oil industry. It was also called at the time... The city with a personality, which I think is a positive designation, <laughs> uh, Tulsa was really an up-and-comer uh, during this period. And the Greenwood community, which became the Negro Wall Street of America and later Black Wall Street, was a black enclave that was created out of necessity. It was created because of segregation. Black folks were not in, able to engage in the regular mainstream white economy. They created their own insular economy in the Greenwood District, which consisted of about 35 square blocks at the time. A fellow named O.W. Gurley established the first business here. Businesses proliferated. I tell people that Black Wall Street is in many ways a misnomer. This was not a banking and investment kind of community. Right. It was a small business and entrepreneurial community. So you would find movie theaters and dance halls and pool halls, restaurants, grocery stores, haberdasheries, clothiers, pharmacies, service providers like doctors and lawyers and accountants and dentists. This was the kind of business community that you could find in small town America all over. The difference was this was an insular black community adjacent to and part of a larger white community that happened to be very wealthy and on an upward trajectory at the time. Uh, just a out of curiosity, how do you think that that made, especially I think maybe younger folks, uh, African American folks living in that particular area, how do you think that made them feel uh, living in a community where they f saw so many people like themselves being successful? Well, that's a, a discussion that we are still having today in 2021. I mean, they had role models. 
Um, they they saw people be successful in the economic sphere, so their possibilities were virtually limitless. They had a wonderful um, educational opportunity in Booker T. Washington High School, which was founded in 1913. E.W. Woods was the, the initial principal and was principal for about 35 years until his death in 1948. But one of his sayings was something to the effect of, you're as good as 99% of the people and better than the rest. <laughs> so it, it's a really affirmative, empowering message in an atmosphere that was suffused in racism where black folks were routinely instructed that they were less than white people, in some cases that they were even subhuman. So to get that kind of affirmation in your community, in your school, in your church, was very, very important, particularly at that time in our history. One of the sayings John and I like to repeat oftentimes when we talk about the queer community, but also in the broader aspect of marginalized communities, that those that can see it can be it, right? Oftentimes, we need that example. We need those role models. Sometimes we need the advertising and the placement out in society that can put maybe plant the seeds or water those seeds of ability within ourselves. I can't imagine that that the same wasn't happening for many people during that time period. How do you think that folks outside of that area, the uh, around the Greenwood District, felt about the folks inside? <laughs> well, we know that one of the underlying uh, factors with respect to the massacre was sort of garden variety jealousy. I like to use the, the, the psychological term cognitive dissonance yeah. because I think it, it's a better descriptor of, of what was going on. So if, if you live in a world in which white supremacy is the norm and you, like most people, subscribe to that and you see across the tracks, literally across the Frisco tracks, a thriving black community where people are living in homes that they own, they're driving cars, they're wearing nice clothes, they're engaging in commerce. Something is askew, awry, and amiss with that picture, if you're white, particularly if you're white and not doing well. Right. That, that's the cognitive dissonance part. And it causes one to believe that there's a need for us to somehow right the ship. Things are out of order. And we must correct this. And so that that sort of psychological dynamic is part of what underlies the massacre in 1921. It's interesting the way you paint the picture, because in reading the book and looking at some of the stories of the individuals that were leaders in the community there, doctors and lawyers, business owners, some of these individuals owned multiple businesses worth tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars had, I think that one of the individuals owned an airplane, right? You're talking about in the 1920s, early 1920s, the picture that many people have of the the roaring 20s uh, and what you normally see happening in the, the rest of the world, this was a microcosm of this happening here in the Greenwood District. And it's exciting when you see that kind of success, but as you mentioned, the whole idea of jealousy. <laughs> I think of back to the song in the in the eighties around jealousy. I can't remember who sung it. Orange Juice Jones, I think. And in the song, he talks about how you get jealous when somebody else has something that you want, right? And right. I, I can imagine uh, that there were a lot of less entrepreneurial, less educated, and maybe just unaware white individuals who were extremely jealous of what was going on with the African-American community at the time there. Yeah, and it, it extends beyond jealousy. That's why cognitive dissonance to me is, is, is important. So, you know, I could be jealous because you have, you know, you have a nice sweater and I want your sweater. But, but it's more than that. Right. In this case, it's I'm jealous because you have a nice sweater and I want your sweater and I'm better than you and I deserve your sweater. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the sort of racist element to it. Right. Absolutely. For sure. So would you mind please sharing, because uh, I'm sure you can share better than we could, what triggered the events 
that happened in Tulsa in 1921? There are a number of underlying factors to the the outbreak that occurred in 1921. Cognitive dissonance, of course, is one. I mentioned that. I always like to point out that you, you can't really appreciate Tulsa in 1921 if you don't have some sort of contextualization. So what happened in Tulsa, I describe as being emblematic of the racial tumult and trauma that was occurring all throughout the United States. So just two years prior, 1919, summer and fall of 1919 was dubbed Red Summer. Red is a metaphorical reference to blood that flowed through the streets. In these major racial outbreaks called race riots um, in places like, in 1919, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Omaha, Chicago, Elaine, Arkansas, Longview, Texas, and on and on and on. And so, again, these kinds of Racial outbreaks described as race riots, but more often than not, assaults on black communities were occurring all throughout the United States. During the same period, in fact, between the collapse of Reconstruction in 1877 and the the midpoint or the peak point of the civil rights movement in 1965, there were more than 4,000, close to 5,000 lynchings in the United States. Most of the victims were African-Americans, and lynching is a form of domestic terrorism. So the point of a lynching is not simply to punish an individual for some real or perceived social slight or legal infraction. The point of a lynching is to send a message to the community to which that individual belongs about their relative place in society. Lynching is a form of implementing white supremacy. So that's the kind of national context in which the disturbance in Tulsa happens in 1921. Couple that with the cognitive dissonance I talked about earlier and land lust was a factor. So the land in which the black community sat called the Greenwood District or Black Wall Street, it really was valued by a number of other white folks in town, including industrialists and corporate types. There was talk of putting a railroad depot in the community. So there was a a sort of backdoor, backroom effort to move the black community farther north and take this land. That was a factor. The KKK, the Klan, the iconic domestic terroristic organization, had a presence in Tulsa and Oklahoma all throughout the 1920s, beginning in the early 1920s, but really peaking in the late 1920s. And then there was a media outlet called the Tulsa Tribune, a daily afternoon newspaper, published a series of inflammatory incendiary articles and editorials. So all this leads to a combustible mix a powder keg or a tinderbox, needing only some sort of catalyst to set the community alight. And so the the event happened on May 30th, 1921, which was Memorial Day. It involved two teenagers, a black boy whose name was Dick Rowland, 19 years old, Sarah Page, white girl who operated an elevator in a downtown building called the Drexel Building. So Dick Rowland needed to use the restroom this day, he walked over to the Drexel building because he knew that there was a restroom available for his use. Facilities were segregated in the Drexel building on the third floor. He boarded the elevator. Sarah Page was operating the elevator. Something happened. We're not sure exactly what that caused the elevator to jerk or to lurch. Dick Rowland bumped into Sarah Page. Sarah Page began to scream. The elevator landed back in the lobby. Dick Rowland, frightened, ran from the elevator. Sarah Page, distraught exited the elevator. Sarah Page ended up in the arms of a clerk from a nearby locally owned store called Renberg's who comforted her. She told him her story. She said she had been assaulted on the elevator, a story that she would later recant, and she would refuse to testify against Dick Rowland after he was arrested for the assault. The store clerk called the police. Word got around town. A large white mob began to gather. The white mob, white men, numbered in the thousands, ultimately, there were rumors that Dick Rowland was going to be seized from jail and lynched. Several dozen black men marched down to protect him. Some of them were World War I veterans who had weapons and knew how to use those weapons. Ultimately, there was a conflict between the much larger white group and the smaller black group. White men tried to take a gun from a black man. The gun discharged, and things went south from there. Uh, ultimately, the black community, the Greenwood District, Black Wall Street, was invaded by this large white mob. Some of the mobsters were deputized by local law enforcement. We know that they prevented the fire department from putting out the fires. 
but they really overran the community. Black men put up a vigorous defense, but really short-lived because they were outnumbered and outgunned. So the mob came into the community of Greenwood, looting, shooting, setting things on fire. And the violence lasted roughly 16 hours. It was quelled by a unit of the National Guard called in by the governor out of Oklahoma City. But when the dust settled, historians believe that somewhere between 100 and 300 people were killed, although the official death toll is 37. We can talk about that later. Hundreds of people were injured. Property damage, conservatively estimated, was $1.5 to $2 million, well over $25 million today. At least 1,250 homes in the Black community were destroyed, as were a number of businesses, churches, a school, etc. The Red Cross came in, was led by Maurice Willows out of St. Louis. They provided health care, food, shelter, and clothing, and a couple of downtown churches, Holy Family Cathedral, and First Presbyterian Church also helped with the post-massacre relief. The remarkable part of this, though, is that most people, most African-Americans, roughly 10,000 in number who were here, most of them remained in Tulsa. They began rebuilding immediately after the devastation. They rebuilt the community sufficient to host the National Negro Business League, Booker T. Washington's Chamber of Black Chamber of Commerce in 1925. And again, the community peaked as a business community and an entrepreneurial community in the early to mid-1940s. So the story here is really the story of the human spirit in the face of pretty crass and gross systemic racism. The human spirit ultimately prevailed. And that's what we commemorate more than anything else. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. I'm glad you painted the picture for us or took us through the timeline. I think the focus for many of us today, especially when we think about what is uh, continue, what we continually see year after year happening in America is this uh, continued racism and prevalence of uh, white supremacy and how, like you said, incendiary it, it, it was that this, I think on its own, might look like a benign event can then cause such an amazing spark and destruction to the community there. How do you think that the individuals in the community there dealt with what happened immediately afterwards. How did they kind of basically, like you said, pick up the pieces and and they rebuilt what was there? And does that have an effect on their ability to build wealth and continue that wealth building as a legacy for their community? Well, one of the things that we often grapple with today is the various disparities that exist, including the, the, the wealth gap. So, so white wealth tends to be about 10 times that of, of black wealth. Why is that? Well, if we connect the dots to these historical events, we can understand the roots of many of the various disparities, including the wealth gap. So we had a relatively wealthy uh, black community, certainly individuals who were, who were without question wealthy whose entire wealth was destroyed, which, which means that it could not be transferred intergenerationally, which means that a lot of people who had, who had built up assets that could be transferred had those assets totally destroyed and affected at least one and probably many more generations to come in terms of, of wealth building. So we have to look at the whole sweep of history, if we really want to understand the wealth gap. I mean, and we go all, go all the way back to uh, the enslavement of people of African ancestry and the fact that they worked for no wages, right? right. They should have been building, building assets, but, but, but were not. I mean, these, that, that's sort of the nature of, of slavery. So if we make all these sort of, sorts of connections, we can better understand why these, these gaps exist today. 
They are rooted primarily in systemic structural racism. And it's important for us to, to connect the dots and then figure out what it is we need to do to dismantle um, the systemic racism that I don't even think it's arguable. I think it's inarguably still exists. Right. On page 34 of the book, you say here, this historic act of domestic terrorism reverberated throughout the nation and quelled the nascent entrepreneurial spirit within many African Americans. And when I read that, it made me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how if your safety and security are constantly being challenged, you cannot aspire. You cannot move up to the point where you are thinking about how to become an entrepreneur, how to grow some sort of financial security for yourself and for your family and for your community, because you're constantly either worried about your the scarcity of the resources, or you're worried about your physical safety. And so, I love that you say that this, it really did kind of quell this spirit within the community or in individuals. And I can't help but believe that that similar feelings are prevalent today within uh, the African-American and other minority communities. Absolutely. I think that, I think it's important to understand, again, like you pointed out, historically, it's hard to think about planning for your future when your future is, is so uncertain. And particularly back in that, back in that era, um, it's hard after the example of, of the destruction of Black Wall Street for people to imagine creating these entrepreneurial communities and creating wealth uh, because the wealth represented a threat to the powers that be and the wealth really existed at the whim of the powers that be. So transferring wealth intergenerationally as opposed to taking advantage of the moment and being being more consumer oriented was a real tension. Right. And as you pointed out, this wasn't an isolated event, right? This is no, not this at all. was this was happening on similar scales in many cities around the country. But I can't imagine it also wasn't happening on a microscopic level where you would see maybe one or two households invaded, burned down individuals who were being, I guess, you know, you talk about all the lynchings. So there isn't just a a few handful of events, but there is a pattern that existed throughout America in this in the 19 early 1900s of keeping individuals from being able to build some sort of life for themselves. Well, and of course, the Klan is notorious for that. I mean, that's what that's the function that the Klan served. So the Klan was this vigilante group of terrorists who made it their mission to intimidate black folks and make sure that they understood their relative place in society. So the Klan would do things like burn people out chase people out of communities and so forth, all interestingly under the banner of Christianity, which mm-hmm. was built into to the Klan's founding documents. So I see a lot of similarities between Black Wall Street as well as what happened in Rosewood in, in line of, with what you were just saying. Was there sort of this sense, or do you, you, do you get this sense that a lot of white folks, uh, KKK members, were really looking for excuses to be able to terrorize black folk fake news (laughs) yeah i mean i think yes and so uh, let's look at some some of the more um prevalent excuses were the taboo of black male white female relationships so there were a lot of false stories about black men and and white women which really was a was a a trigger for the clan And I, I don't want to let people off by, by focusing all our attention on the Klan. We've got to remember that there were a lot of well-heeled 
wealthy, prominent folks who either belonged to the Klan surreptitiously or supported the Klan behind the scenes. So it's not just crazy people running around in white robes. There are people involved in, in, in this, these sort of um, grossly racist, terroristic activities who were wearing judges robes or ministerial robes, other kinds of robes. Yeah, I think it was in the in the book, and I, I'm going to forget the name of the the minister or pastor of the Presbyterian Church who, after the events, tried to build a coalition of individuals who wanted to to right the wrongs or make things better. And even with his own within his own congregation, although these individuals may not have participated, still have no had no appetite to right the wrongs. Yeah, Dr. Kerr at First Presbyterian Church. Right. An amazing white minister uh, who really, he actually went downtown when the disturbance was breaking out and tried to calm the crowd unsuccessfully. He lobbied for reparations post-massacre, all these wonderful things. And I think we need to elevate, we need to elevate Dr. Kerr because allies are really important. And if we, you know, people of color, LGBTQ, we all need allies. If we're in marginalized minority communities, we can do a lot of things for ourselves, but we also need allies, strong voices who are within these systems that can actually uh, help us effect change. Absolutely. that John and I say that again and again about the place that the LGBT community is at today. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for allies. And you bring up a good point here about allies and how allies they're inside of the community that oftentimes has the individuals who are discriminatory or bring about this violence and may be the ones who that community may be more likely to be able to listen to rather than listening to us as members outside of that community. Absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, interestingly, I serve on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. And one of our overarching goals is to work toward reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is an elusive concept. It's not a point. It's, it, it's a journey. And we've had some recent circumstances where we had to decide particular individual who has political views that are inconsistent with the political views of most of us, but is working with us on our core mission, which is to uplift the, the Greenwood community to encourage cultural tourism, to encourage curricular change, to teach this history. So this individual has really been fully on board with us on that. And that's ultimately what, what, what matters. If we are about reconciliation, we're going to have to, it seems to me, extend olive branches to people with whom we differ and try to figure out what our common ground is. We start on this narrow space expanse of common ground for us is this core mission about the Greenwood District, and we work outward from there. Thank you. Uh, and I think it's important um, to recognize that the individuals who are allies, the individuals who do want to support or are invested, it doesn't happen um, that they stumble upon this, right? They Oftentimes, they learn. Uh, the knowledge. We need to understand, we need to know, we need to learn about these kinds of events so that we can become invested, so that we can then do what is necessary to right the wrongs and make sure that this doesn't happen again. And just to add to what you just said, I, I think this is important, again, drawing the analogy between communities of color, LGBTQ communities, the other thing that's important, if we really want to reconcile and we want to, to build allyship, is that we have to give people the benefit of the doubt, which is to say we have to allow people to make mistakes. People don't know everything, including language, the right language, and, and the ins and outs, uh, particularly of marginalized communities. So if we want to build relationships between and among communities, we have to be willing to give other people grace. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because I will be honest. Um, I was quite nervous about this interview, partly because you know, being a cis 
white man, I there are a lot of things I don't know about what has happened with African Americans and the African American community, even today. And because of that, I have... <laughs> I always have that kind of lingering fear that I'm going to say something that is not correct or invalid, or maybe others may find it, it, it abrasive. And I, I just always kind of am fearful that I'm going to do something like that. But we can try. <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things that we were curious about was for our community, those of you who listen, those of you who are in our Queer Money Facebook group, we were curious how many of you are were aware of or are aware of today of these events and where you might have learned about them? And we were, I think, not necessarily unsurprised because of, the, uh, of our own history. We did not know about this event, these events up until about a year ago. So we asked in our Queer Money Facebook group, uh, who here had learned about this event in grade school or in high school. We also asked on our Instagram feed. And like I said, we were not unsurprised, but 27 people said that they did not learn about it until they were older. And eight people said they didn't even know, they still don't know about what Black Wall Street is or the the uh, Tulsa race massacre. We were really surprised that not a single person said that they had learned about it in school. And some of the comments were quite surprising because some individuals lived in Tulsa. One individual said they lived in and attended Oklahoma public schools from kindergarten through eighth grade, and it was never mentioned. They didn't even learn about it until they got to the master level diversity course in school, in in college, and that was in Iowa. So, they didn't learn about it even in their own state. So, that kind of kind of paints the picture of wanting to hide these types of events. Um, another person said that they grew up in Tulsa, graduated from Booker T. Washington High School, and they were not taught it that they learned about it through their grandmother who lived through the events. I think it's important to also highlight that this is a combination of a diverse combination of respondents. We had black, Asian, white, all sorts of folks. Um, and some of the re these responses came from the African-American community. So we're curious. I think a component of this entire story is how it has been whitewashed um, for so long from so many people, uh, even those who are from Tulsa. Can you extrapolate on that? Why, how has that happened and, and how can we remedy that? I chair the Education Committee for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, and we're, we're working on those issues uh, regarding curriculum reform, which I think is the most compelling form of reparations possible, is to correct the curriculum, make sure this history is, is taught properly. It is not uncommon for people to have grown up here and not really know much about the the history. And let's think about why that might be. This, the event happened in 1921. As I noted, Tulsa was on an upward trajectory toward becoming the oil capital of the world. So the leadership of Tulsa, the chamber types, had an interest in minimizing what happened in Tulsa in 1921 for the sake of the reputation of the city. That's important to remember. There are also a lot of psychological dynamics that we need to think about when we think about an event like this. In the Black community, for example, there would have been post-traumatic stress disorder, almost a, a shell-shocked character to the community. There would also have been fear, fear that this, thing, this event could recur um, as so many events like this were happening all throughout the United States anyway. In talking with some of the survivors, there was some notion that Many people right after the event occurred felt like they didn't want to burden their children with this information because they felt it might create some sort of psychic or psychological damage. In sectors of the white community, there was shame and blame going on. And for that reason, they didn't want to discuss it either. So this history was buried um, in legal parlance, we would say was sub rosa for many years. There were a couple of big openings in terms of awareness. One was on the 50th anniversary of 1971, a white gentleman named Ed Wheeler published a magazine article on this history. Many people were shocked. They had no idea this had happened 50 years ago. 
he got death threats. Then in 1982, Scott Ellsworth, who was a doctoral student under the tutelage of Dr. John F. Franklin at Duke University, wrote a book called Death in a Promised Land, which was a really in-depth look at the massacre. It's still the seminal book on the massacre. And Scott Ellsworth is now a professor at University of Michigan. In 1997, there was a state-created commission called the Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. It issued its final report in 2001. It really chronicled the facts of this history and made recommendations with regard to reparations. And that was a major opening that got international attention. So gradually, we are beginning to elevate this history to its rightful place. But we at the Centennial Commission want to make sure that the history is, is taught routinely um, in Oklahoma public schools at a very minimum. We've been working with the Oklahoma Department of Education and the governor and one of our senators uh, to make sure that happens. The Centennial Commission has developed lesson plans, teaching supplementary materials for this history. Three years ago, we started a summer teachers institute to teach teachers how to teach this history. Uh, the point of the institute really is to give them the substantive knowledge around the history and some comfortability, but also to share with them pedagogy, how to teach this history at various levels of engagement in our schools. We've been working with Tulsa Public Schools particularly, and Tulsa Public Schools is developing curriculum for all grades K through 12 on this history. So we are making progress, but like in many cases, progress doesn't tend to come as fast as we would like it. Uh, but we are slow and we are steady and is going to get done. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's, and it's inspiring. We're, gl we're glad that it's, it's starting to, to come to light. Uh, and thank you for sharing the context of how it got whitewashed. I mean, I, I, there were some of the variables that you included there that I never would have myself considered. Um, so there seems like there were so many, I guess, drivers to sort of forget about it from all sorts of populations. And it's very conflicting, I guess. Kind of hard to swallow. Yeah, it is. I, I think, as John mentioned, I appreciate that you kind of gave the whole gamut of both individuals in the both in the African American community and the the white community of how the different perspectives may kind of lead individuals. the The shame on both sides, the the fear on both sides, the the post traumatic stress. I think is one that you know you you mentioned that, and we're all becoming much more familiar with those terms and how that affects individuals because of how much of it is being talked about today from individuals returning from war. But I don't think we necessarily oftentimes place it with these kinds of events, but it's clear to see why a parent may withhold telling their child that this is what happened to our family and how we played a role in it, or we did or did not stand up for what was right. And that there's, I think there's a lot of aspects to, to wanting to withhold. So it's, it's not just the fact that there are powerful people saying we don't want to say this or we don't want to talk about it. It's interesting that thinking with, with that in mind, in the book you said we will continue to struggle with issues of race until we bind up the wounds of our history. So it seems to me like what you and the Centennial Commission are doing here is trying to put the history out there so that the wounds can be bound. Absolutely. And I guess it's interesting because another thing you said in the book, which it's one I found very reflective for myself because of being a part of the LGBT community, you said successful 21st century entrepreneurs cannot be bound by the binary racial equation of the past. At the community, state, national, and global levels, racial and ethnic diversity abounds. And I appreciate that. Our challenge is figuring out ways to leverage that diversity for mutual advantage. And I think that's what's so exciting about the world we live in today is that we are seeing individuals appreciate diversity more than I think we've ever seen in the past as a means to help individuals both financially, but also at that level of actualization. 
the more we can aspire, the better we feel about ourselves and diversity is a, is a player in that. Absolutely. You know, I do a, a lot of diversity, equity and inclusion work. And the central message there is that we are we are bound ultimately by our shared humanity. Right. So even though we may have parochial interests, you might have an LGBTQ interest, a black interest, a Latinx interest. If we can come together around our shared humanity and the notion that we should all be respected and valued and validated, we will have come a long way. You noted that we seem to be sort of expanding the breadth of this embrace of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I just want to note for the record that every time that happens, with every bit of expansion comes backlash. Right. Without being, I don't want to be partisan political, but but I, I would submit to you that the fact that we had a black president for two terms resulted in a backlash of the president we just just had. And there is a sense of loss on the part of some people as demographics change and they feel their relative power and privilege slipping away. Absolutely. That's, you know, I, as I mentioned, when we were talking before this show, this is a conversation I think John and I could talk about for hours about what's going on in the world today and how it parallels so much of what has happened in the past and the cautionary tales that we can take from them, the past. I know that we want to be cognizant of your time. Right now, you are working in the community to do a lot of work around the 100-year anniversary. And there's a 100-day countdown to the, the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening right now? Is the, are these events still happening because of what's going on with COVID? Uh, and is there any way for those of us outside of the community to support this or participate? Listeners can go to the website, which is www.tulsa2021.org. You can see um, a lot of background information on this history, an array of the 100-day countdown events, uh, most of which are events that we are collaborating with other organizations. We are sort of um, giving our seal of approval to these, these, these events as we do the countdown, There's various kinds of events, many of them which might have been in person other had it not been for COVID are going to be sort of virtual events, but we are working toward the actual anniversary, which is May 31st and June 1st. And we will have some gala events around the actual anniversary. We haven't actually nailed down the keynoters, but we expect to have high profile individuals here for those events. I just talked with the office the other day, the Centennial Commission office and we know through hotel bookings that a lot of people are going to be here in person because they want to sort of see the community and they certainly want to see the opening of Greenwood Rising, which is a world-class history center that we're building on the southeast corner of, of Greenwood and Archer, kind of the gateway to the to the Green, Greenwood community. But we certainly welcome, we're almost at our goal for Greenwood Rising, our financial goal, but contributions are welcome through the website. There are opportunities to subscribe to a newsletter, um, there are opportunities to do all sorts of other kinds of things, maybe pr participate remotely in some of the committee work that's that's ongoing. Just visit the website and uh, check it out. Again, it's Tulsa2021.org. Yeah. Thank you very much. And David and I both found um, both your books very profound and enlightening. Um, first was Black Wall Street, From Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District, and then your latest one, Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. Where all can our listeners find those books if they want to read more about them? The easiest way to find books these days is amazon.com. <laughs> you know, I, I love Amazon. I would take people to my website, but my website just links them to amazon.com. <laughs> uh, but so I, I do want listeners to go to my website because there are a lot of interviews and clips and articles and things that you might be interested in on the website, which is 
HannibalBJohnson.com, which is H-A-N-N-I-B-A-L-B, as in boy, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. Thank you. And I want to encourage our listeners to please go visit uh, Hannibal's website. We, we barely scratched a thin layer of the surface of this entire story. Um, we really could not do it justice in the time that we had, at least right now. Um, so there's a lot more to unwrap, and we would encourage you to go to Hannibal's website. Where else can our listeners follow you? Are you on social media as well? I'm on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not on Instagram. Not on what are the other site? What are the other <laughs> things I could I could be on, but I'm not. <laughs> you may not know it, but you're on YouTube. We watched a couple of videos of you being interviewed okay. yesterday. <laughs> so I'm on YouTube. So involuntarily, somebody right. put me there. Exactly. <laughs> well, we want to thank you so much uh, for your time, Hannibal. We know that you're you're a very busy uh, man, and uh, you're doing a lot of great work uh, and important work. And we want to thank you for making some time for us and our little show. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap it up? I can't think of anything. I appreciate being on. Awesome. Thank you. Well, we thank you so much. It. We appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. Join our movement to build a community of happier, healthier, and wealthier gay men by getting your free copy of The Five Building Blocks of a Happy Gay Life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. Thank you, Hannibal, for your ongoing work that you're doing to raise awareness about the history of the historic Greenwood District of Tulsa and the race massacre that has been talked about way too little. Thank you for your time and sharing your knowledge with us and our listeners. To you, our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Queer Money. Here's your queer money takeaway from this episode. Please go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash 249 to get copies of either Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District or Black Wall Street 100, both written by Hannibal B. Johnson. They both share an important part of our history that we should all know about and never forget. Finally, and again, we make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer your question in an upcoming episode. Thank you. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.